Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we, we thank you so much because we've been so blessed by you. We look around, Father, and we consider your blessings upon our lives. For our homes, places that you've given us to live, our food on, on our plates, for the heritage of children and family that you've given to us. And Father, for those of us that, that know you, your Son, Jesus Christ, in faith, we thank you for our salvation. God, you are a mighty God. And we, when we look into your word, we see mighty things about you. Father, help us all as we study today in the book of Malachi to understand your word and to apply it to our lives. And in so doing, Father, help us to conform evermore to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, how many of you have ever been in a state of denial about something? How many of you have ever been in a, in a period of your life where you just couldn't believe something was true? Maybe, uh, you know, for me, it was in 2002 when the Angels won the World Series. I, I just couldn't imagine that the Angels could win the World Series, but they did. And, and there's many other examples we could discuss about denial, uh, but one that comes to mind in particular is something that uh, my wife and I watch on TV. Anybody ever watch American Idol, that, that music show, American Idol? Okay, a few of you, not too many, so I'll have to explain it. American Idol is a musical uh, singing show where various contestants try out to become the next great American Idol or the great American singer. And, I mean, teenagers and people in their 20s and 30s come from all over to this TV show to try out and to go before these judges and sing their best and to try and make it to the very final round when they get voted on to see who's going to be the next great singer. And I don't know how many of you have been watching this show, but right now it's in the tryout phase. And in the tryout phase, you have some really good singers and you have some really, really terrible singers. And it's funny because some of these folks, God bless them, they get up there and they stand before the judges and they sing away as best they can. And Simon Cowell, one of the judges, says that was absolutely atrocious. <laughs> it, it, they just do horribly. But they're all in a state of denial. Inevitably, every single one of them turns to the judges and says, Oh, well, that's just your opinion. I'm a good singer. You just don't think I am, but that's just your opinion. I know I'm a good singer. And this goes on and on and on. And, and contestant after contestant gets up there. I heard one contestant the other day uh, sing that 80s song, Everybody's Working for the Weekend, opera style. Okay, opera style. I mean, it just didn't work. And yet this woman really thought she could sing. Totally in a state of denial. Total denial of the truth. These contestants were in a total state of denial about an indisputable fact. They couldn't 
sin. And, you know, when we open up our Bibles to the book of Malachi, and I encourage you to turn there right now, the last book of the Old Testament, when you look at the book of Malachi, the Jews, the Israelites, God's chosen people, and in particular, the priests of the Israelites, were in a total state of denial. A total state of denial. You say, what were they denying? Well, in this day, we're in about 450 B.C., these Jewish priests serving in the temple in Jerusalem are in complete denial about what God is saying to them. God is saying, you're shaming my name. You're defiling my name. And these priests were responding and saying, no. No, we're not. No, no. We question your evidence, God. We doubt what you're having to say right now. They were totally denying that they were bringing God shame. If you would, look at your Bibles. In Malachi chapter 1, we are in verse 6, and we're going to read to verse 11. And it will be up on the screen for you to follow along as well, or you can follow along on your sheet. Let's read Malachi 1, 6 to 11. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am, the ma- if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts. To you priests who despise my name... Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now, entreat God's favor, that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there, who is there, even among you, who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For, from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, a lot of text there. We're going to break it down. And if you don't know anything about Malachi, I'm going to simplify it as best I can so you can understand what's going on here. Because it is a little difficult. Some big words, some big concepts, some foreign concepts to many of us. Let's start with verse 6. Okay, look at verse 6 in particular. And in verse 6, we see God making a statement that is culturally acceptable. Really, that is transcultural. 
transgenerational, all peoples of all nations would really accept this kind of a statement. He says, a son honors his father and a servant honors his master. That's indisputable. I mean, that's just that's a fact of life. We, it, is in, is, it is our intention for sons to honor fathers. It is our intention for those who serve to honor those that they serve, to show them honor. God is bringing out a, a, a universal truth of sorts. And he's using this as an example. He's using this as an example to show the people of Israel, in particular the priests, that they were not honoring him that they were not serving Him. You see, God is both Father and Master. He goes on to say, God says, If then I am the Father, which He is, and if then I am the Master, which He is, He says, where is my honor? And where is my reverence? It's not there. You see, the Jewish priests of Malachi's day were dishonoring God's name. You say, well, how were, how were they dishonoring God's name? Well, let's go on. Again, verse 6. A son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? If then I am the master, where is my reverence? And then continuing, says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. Now, God is using some circular reasoning here. And I want you to, to see it. There's uh, a word that we need to define, and it's the word despise. And I want to center in on that word despise. There are three instances in which this word occurs, believe it or not. That last word, you see, is contemptible. But actually, in the original language, that's the same word. It's just used differently. It's just translated differently for emphasis here. But that word despised right there in Hebrew originally meant to show contempt for. In other words, to hate. And also it meant, it had the idea of being worthless or being totally meaningless. So what God is saying here to Israel, He's saying, you priests despise my name. You hate my name and you consider it worthless. They say, how have we hated your name and considered it worthless? And then he centers in on the, on the crux of the problem. He's saying, you're defiling my altar. You're defiling my altar. In that day, sacrifices were made upon the altar in the temple, which would be a demonstration of the people's desire to receive forgiveness, which would be a demonstration of their worship toward God. And there were certain ways in which those sacrifices need to be prepared. And God was telling the priests, the preparation of my sacrifices are polluted. The preparation of my sacrifices have been violated by you. You've defiled my altar. And they say, okay, but how have we defiled you? And in the very end, God says, hey... If you defiled my altar, if you defiled my table, if you showed hate and contempt for my table, you're showing hate to me. You're defiling me. You're despising me. He's bringing it full circle. It starts off with the, God charging them with despising 
with hating Him, showing His name to be meaningless. They say, how? He says, you've polluted the offerings. And in so doing, you've defiled me. You've made the table of the Lord contemptible. Pretty serious charge. A pretty, pretty serious charge. God, God responds to Israel by accusing them of making insulting acts of worship that reflect their opinion of God. They had offered defiled food on God's altar, and that altar was just as if they were defiling God himself. And really for the Jews, this, it, it had become, the sacrificial system for the priests had really become a joke to them. It had become something of a, a nuisance, of a wearisome thing that they had to do. And what better to illustrate uh, that the sacrificial system had become a joke than to show a joke. And I wanted to show a joke here. If you can read that at the bottom, it says, The George Foreman altar was the envy of everyone who had to sacrifice on the go. Okay? But this is what was going on here. This is somewhat of, a, of an illustration of their attitude. In other words, they were whatever, whatever could get by. A defiled piece of meat, that's fine. A defiled preparation of the bread, that's okay. Whatever it takes, I'm going to do it the quick and easy way. The George Foreman altar way. Reverendfun.com, you should check out that website. It's, it's free and they let you reproduce it everything. Oh, I don't even pay royalties. It's nice. It, it was a joke. It was a joke. The sacrificial system in 450 B.C. approximately was a joke to those Jewish priests and the people. They were making a mockery of God's name. And, and you know, uh, this, this can ring true to life today. Have you, ever, uh, have you ever given a half effort? Have you ever uh, kind of been somewhat half-hearted in your sacrifice or in your service or in your work? I know I have. And uh, one thing that really rings true right now is I remember my first uh, coaching experience. I coached high school soccer last year. And it was a really, really great experience. But I'll tell you, I was really ill-equipped to coach. I didn't realize how ill-equipped I was. Because I had the darndest time trying to motivate these kids, with the exception of Andy Eichler. He was a good... Uh, Glenn's nephew was great. But other than that, these kids, these soccer players, who I desperately wanted to, to fight for every game, and I wanted them to play their best and to give every effort to, to win the game and to play as a team, and man, these kids just... Eh, eh, whatever. Ah, oh, half effort is fine. I sat them down one halftime and I said, I am totally embarrassed by how you played. I am totally embarrassed. And they're just kind of like, eh, eh, you know what, that's all right. I tell you, I don't know if it's Christian school or what, but anyway, I want, I mean, I want those kids to play hard. When I was in high school and I played varsity soccer, I, I love soccer like nobody's business. And man, I'll tell you, yes, my mom what I was like on the soccer field, and she said, hey, Neil was a different person on the soccer field. I mean, I was going all out. I didn't care if, if I was losing 10 nothing. I was going to play as hard as I could every single minute. Half effort. You ever given God a half effort? Half-hearted sacrifice. Well, that's what the Jews are doing here. They're giving Him a half effort. They're not going as far as God wants them to go. 
They've slacked. And God's calling them to account for it. Verse 8. Let's continue. Now he's going to get into more details. Okay, what does this half effort look like? Here we go. God says, And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Man, they're offering blind animals on the altar. I can't, I can't even begin to describe what an offense that is to God. You read back in, the, in Leviticus, you read about the way these animals and these, the breads and the sacrifices were to be prepared, and you consider that they were offering him a blind animal? I would not want to have been in their shoes. I would not have wanted to have been in their shoes because that would have been such a tremendous offense to God. A blind animal on the altar. And God's saying, hey, you know what? Just, I'm just asking you, be reasonable, be reasonable, be reasonable. He's saying, look what you're doing. You're giving me a blind animal on the altar. Be reasonable here. Come on. Would you give this same animal to your governor? Now that right there, we need to stop and, well, what's he talking about? Well, in that day and age, there was a Persian appointed governor over Israel. You see, the Jews were not entirely independent still. They were still under somewhat of the control of other nations. And the Persians had appointed a governor over them. It could have been a Jew, but most likely a Persian overseer. And God is saying, hey, go take that blind goat, walk it on over to the governor's house and give it to him as a gift. See what he says. People are going, no way. I'm not going to do that. If I do that, that Persian governor is going to hang my head. No way would I give that goat to that governor. Absolutely not. No questions asked. And God is saying, hey, be reasonable here. If you're not going to give it to the governor, why in the world are you sacrificing that to me? Why in the world would you sacrifice that to me? That's offensive to me. Now we get to verse 9. And God gives somewhat of a second chance here. And our God is a God of second chances, and that's what He gives in verse 9. He says, But now entreat God's favor, that He may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will He accept you favorably? And the answer is no. Of course not. And what's, what's really beautiful about this verse, this is the most picturesque verse in this section of Scripture. And, and if, if uh, I'm not very, really well versed with the Hebrew language, um, but when I did study this and, and had some helps, I understood that, that Malachi and God is really using very, very poetic language here. There's two words to, to highlight, entreat and hands. And those words there, it's unique because the word entreat is a verb, okay, uh, and it has the idea of literally, literally speaking, if we were to take this literally, it would be to stroke the face of God. To with, with your hand, to affect, to show affection for God. Entreat the face of God. Stroke the face of God. Show affection. That's what that word has to do with. 
And so on, on, the, on the one hand, Malachi, the God is saying through Malachi, I want you to show affection to me with your hands. I want you to stroke my face. I want you to please me. I want you to please me. And I don't want you to do what you're presently doing with your hands. I want you to use your hands to stroke my face. And I don't want you to use your hands to offer me defiled sacrifices. Isn't that beautiful? And the Bible is filled with those beautiful images. Really, if you're, if you're a fan of poetry, I'll tell you, read the Old Testament. Because especially the prophets, they speak in poetic terms so often and communicate such a powerful truth. Use your hands to please God, not to defile Him. God was offering a second chance. Their current state of disobedience would not incur God's favor. And now he gets to the, the crux. He, he, he comes to the point in the message where he says, here's what I want you to do. Here is what I want you to do. I want you to shut the doors. Now look at the next verse, verse 10. Who is there, God says. Is there someone out there? Who is there, even among you, who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. Shut the doors. Shut the doors. What, what does that mean, to shut the doors? Consider this. To be within the doors or the gates was a symbol of being within the temple. And the temple of Israel was the place of worship. It was the place of significance. The place where the people went to worship God. When they were in the doors, when they were in the gates... That was where they, they sought peace with God and tried to sacrifice to God. To be within the doors was to be in close connection with worshiping God and being a pious Jew. To be situated inside the temple area was to be in a place of significance, demonstrating one's devotion to God. Yet God was crying out, for the doors to be shut, for the gates to be closed. If insincere sacrifices were going to continue, if defilement was going to continue inside the gates, inside the doors, God was pleading, please, someone, shut the door. Shut the gate. He's saying, will someone stand up for what's right? Will someone please stand up for what is right? When you see blind and lame and sick animals on my altar, will you shut the doors? When you see a half-hearted sacrifice on my altar, will you shut the gates? Will someone please stand up for what is right? When you see the fire being lit on my altar, in preparation for a sacrifice, and that sacrifice isn't fitting for me, then 
put water on the fire, kick everybody out, and close my temple. That's the significance of shut the doors. It's a serious, serious statement. Because for God to say, I want my doors shut in my temple, meant that he was willing to receive no worship at all than to receive insincere worship. Let me say that again. For God to say, I want my doors shut, that meant he wanted either no no worship at all compared to a worship that was insincere or defiled. He would rather take no worship. That's significant. Will you stand up for what is right? And we, we can... Uh, we can consider that today. I know that many of you are, are in a, uh, a workplace environment where there's compromise, where there's lying going on or cheating of sorts. Um, you, you work in an office or in a place where there's just constant sin occurring. Will you stand up for what's right? Maybe uh, you see... Someone in your family treating another one in your family disrespectfully. Oh, I'm not going to say nothing. Well, will you stand up for what's right? God desires us to stand up for what is right. To stand up for what is true and what is morally good, what is befitting Him. He says, if you won't do that, don't bother worshiping me at all. Stand up for what's right. But for Israel... No one would stand up for what was right. We've, uh, we've seen many ways in which the priests dishonored God's name. And I want to highlight, just, some, just for you to note down on your outline, how have they defiled God's name? How have they dishonored God's name? I want to give you some things to consider and on into the next chapter as well, just so you can remember this and keep that, this in your memory banks. First, we had, heard, we had seen that they despised God's name in chapter 1, verse 6. They despised. They loathed God. They considered His name worthless. Second, we saw that they had offered defiled sacrifices to God. Chapter 1, verse 7. If we were to continue a little further, and we're not going to go there today, we'll go there at a later time, but if we were to continue, we'd see that in chapter 1, verse 13, they considered the sacrificial system a nuisance. It says, oh, what a weary... I can't believe i got to do this for the Lord... What a nuisance. Moving on, they didn't give glory to God. Chapter 2, verse 2. They were shameful messengers of God. Chapter 2, verse 7. And they caused the people to stumble. Chapter 2, verse 8. Why do I bring up all of this? We, I've already, I think we've already made the case that they were dishonorable. Well, I bring this up because at the very end, God makes an interesting comment in chapter 2, verse 9. Let's take a look. He says this, Therefore, as a result of this, priests, as a result of this, as a result of your dishonor, I have also made you contemptible and base before all the people because you have not kept my ways. Now if you notice in green, he's bringing it full circle again. You despised my name? Chapter In, in 1 verse 6, Okay, if you're going to do that, chapter 2, verse 9, I'm going to make you despised. 
Same Hebrew word. Despised and contemptible. You despise my name. Alright? The honor and the position and the authority that I gave you, I'm going to take away. The position that you had of prominence, the position of respect before the people, your very jobs, I'm going to take away and make you contemptible and make you despised. That's a, that's a serious claim right there that the people, that the priests are having to swallow. Going back to verse 10, he says, I have no pleasure in you. I have no pleasure in you, priests, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. I won't accept it any longer. I won't accept an offering any longer. And then he gives a reason. He says four. You see that four? I underlined it twice there. Four. And I'm going to give you a final, a final consideration of why I'm not going to accept your sacrifices anymore. And here we get, uh, when we think of the prophets, we think of, oh, well, they're always talking about the future. Well, that's not always the case. Usually they're talking about the present situation. But here he's talking about the future. Now God says, okay, I'm not going to accept you anymore. And here's what I'm going to do. Instead of accepting your worship, I am going to make my name great among other people. I'm going to make my name great among the Gentiles. Great among other nations. God will not accept an offering from the corrupt priests because His name requires a greater sacrifice. A greater sacrifice than the one given to Him by the priests. And please hear this very very clearly. Since the Jews did not shut the temple gates, since the priests did not shut the gates, when shameful sacrifices were brought to God's altar, God was declaring in verse 11 that something spectacular was going to happen outside the gates. Something spectacular was going to happen outside the gates of the temple that would compel even the nations to honor Him and to worship Him. This spectacular event would soon give the nations the freedom and ability to worship God. No longer would people be obliged to enter into worship with God through the corruption of the Jewish priests. There would arise a better priest who would offer a better sacrifice. God had resolved to make His glory known by a greater priest who would offer the most pure sacrifice. And this sacrifice would not be accomplished on the temple altar. And this sacrifice would not be accomplished in the temple gates. This was the sacrifice of Jesus, the Most High Priest. This was the sacrifice of God's own Son. This was the sacrifice that was accomplished outside the temple. It was a sacrifice that was accomplished outside the gates. I want to read for you a portion of Hebrews 13 
And I've added some words for clarification. I don't intend to add to the Word of God, but I've, I've done it for clarification as we read this. So please note that. In green are some additions I've given, uh, capitalized. And then it gets to the crux in the yellow. He says this in Hebrews 13. The author of Hebrews says, For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those priests who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those priests who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest as a symbol of forgiveness for sin are burned outside the camp. But therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. That is, set apart from the corruption of the temple sacrifices. You ask, why, is it, why do you keep talking about this gate? Why is it so significant that Jesus' death occurred outside the temple gates? Because it proved that God was no longer in the business of confining his blessings to Israel. Israel had rejected God, and now the parameters of his love and grace, salvation, was opened up to the nations, was opened up to the Gentiles, was opened up to you and me. Something that we are to be eternally thankful for. And, and God's most acceptable sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus, consider this, the most acceptable sacrifice of all was not done in the gates on the altar. Jesus did not die within the temple on the altar. And that's significant. God was rejecting that system that the Jews had corrupted. And He was accepting a new system outside the gates with the people, with the nations, with the Gentiles. God was identifying with them outside the gates and saying, okay, my sacrifice now is for all. God's most acceptable sacrifice occurred outside the gates. Secondly, our worship, our worship of God, our sacrifice of God is now to be conducted outside the gates. It's to be conducted in a new and fresh way. And look at the next part, portion of Hebrews. He, talk, he goes on to talk about worship now. Really unique. It, it applies to Malachi so clearly. He says this, Therefore, let us go forth to Him, Jesus, outside the camp, outside the gate, bearing His reproach. From here, For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by Jesus, let us continually offer and look at these sacrifices. The sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips. Giving thanks to His name. Don't forget to do good and to share. Why? For with such, might I add, new sacrifices, God is well pleased. Two things. The greatest sacrifice of all was not done in the temple. It was done outside the gates for the people. And secondly, our worship, how we are to interact with God today is also to be conducted in a new fashion outside the gates. It's to be a worship of the heart. 
not of the stipulations of the law, not of proper animal preparations on the altar. No, 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 no. The new sacrifice, sacrificial system was to be conducted outside the gates in a new spirit-led way. We were to give him the sacrifice of our heart. The fruit of our lips. But really, before, before you can offer, um, before you can offer such a pleasing sacrifice to God, you, you really must be one of his own. And he's, he's come near to all of us. Jesus Christ has come near to all of us by dying outside the gates of the temple. It showed that he was coming near to the nations. And he's near to you today. And I want to let you know, if, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've not known what it is to have eternal life, I'll tell you, it's, it's simple. It's to look upon Jesus and to believe in Him. To believe in Jesus and you will have eternal life. It's as simple as that. To look upon the most acceptable sacrifice of God done near you outside the gates. To look upon Jesus and to believe in Him and in His promise for eternal life. And you'll have it. That's what God promises in His Word. And that's how Malachi brings it all the way from the sacrificial system to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Through faith in Jesus, we can begin a new life with God and we can start that new sacrificial system, the sacrifices of the heart. There is grace outside the gate. There is grace to be found outside the gate. And a couple things. How can we learn from Malachi uh, as we finish up? I want to note two things for you to really consider. This is in particular for those of you who uh, already know the Lord and are believers. Uh, the first is this. A half-hearted sacrifice or a sacrifice made with a resentful heart is not acceptable to God. It's just not. Don't fool yourself. If you are sacrificing or serving God in a way that is resentful or is half-hearted, Boy, I, I, I warn you not to do that. I admonish you not to because God is not pleased. He said, he said very clearly, I would rather you not worship me at all than to worship me half-heartedly or with a resentful spirit. Serious words. And secondly, and this is maybe something more uplifting to consider, is we are to, serve God, to think of serving God as an opportunity, not an obligation. That's really the message here of Malachi. He's saying this is an opportunity. This is not an obligation. And, and the, way I, the way I remind myself that when I serve God, it's an opportunity, is I say, hey, I, I remember Jesus' death. That's what I remember. I, I, I urge you to remind yourself often of what Jesus did for you. Because when you do that, it'll help you view, view your service to God as a labor of love and joy rather than an obligation you are to fulfill. It, it, it's... It's not that simple, but it, but it kind of is. I mean, when you can stop and consider, Jesus died for me, and I was totally undeserving. I didn't merit it one bit, and yet he did it anyway. When you have that mindset, your service 
your sacrifice to God becomes easy. It becomes a sacrifice of love, of thankfulness, of gratefulness. And I want to encourage this church, because I see it here. I do. I see us as a people serving God with thankful hearts. I really honestly see that. I think it has to do with our understanding of grace. We understand that we have been freely given the greatest gift of all. Salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. And our people know that. And so when our people serve and they remind themselves of that, that service becomes joy, not an obligation. Consider serving God in this church if you aren't already. And consider serving Him with the right heart. With a full and thankful heart.